So um, if we could turn to 1 Samuel 1, I want to read from verse 1 to verse 9, sort of have a, having a tentative look at prayer from our people that's been praying and how God answered the prayers. I think we'll stick around 1 Samuel 1 and 2 for a few weeks anyway. <coughs> So I'll give you time to find that portion of God's word, and we'll um, read. Okay, go First Samuel, chapter one, verse one. This is the word of God. Now there was a certain man of Ramatham Sophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of G. Roam, Rehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tuhu, the son of Suf, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And in there at verse 9. Now friends, if you have lost your appetite, it's a sign that something else is going on. And that's certainly true of Hannah here in the opening chapter of 1 Samuel. Um, before we come to Hannah, her circumstance, her prayer, and her prayer or song of rejoicing and thanks uh, in, first, in chapter 2, I just want to put this into its wider context. As many of you know, the conclusion of Judges in which the opening uh, chapters of First Samuel are set. Those uh, times of the judges was a time not dissimilar to our own. In, the, in this respect, uh, it was a time marked by social, political and religious chaos. The recurring statement at the end of the book of Judges is there was no king in Israel and everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. You could well imagine people living at that point in history, you know, a thousand years before Christ, 
and I'm saying to one another, you know, can you believe the, the situation we're in? Look at the state of the nation. It's almost as if the whole world is turned upside down. And I guess it's not uncommon for ourselves to hear such comments. You know, can you believe the state of the nation? Can you believe the state of NHS, education or whatever? Uh, You look at the globe and you say, it looks like the world is upside down. And in the context of judges, people were thinking that if they could only have an earthly king, then the problem would be fixed. Now it's interesting, isn't it, that throughout the history of the world, groups have decided if we could only have a coalition, or if we could only have a republic, or if we could only have a monarchy, or if we could only have a revolution, then everything would be fixed. Now, that's quite, what's quite striking is the fact that within the midst of all of this, you know, within the context of the big picture, the macro picture, the spotlight of Scripture is turned upon and fixed upon the domestic circumstances of this man of Ramatham Sufim, whose name was Elkanah. He's introduced to us there in um, you know, verse 1. He's introduced to us as a certain man. We're told that he has two wives in verse 2. And uh, one of these wives, we're told, is, is childless, and her name is Hannah. Presumably, Hannah was his first wife, And then there's a second wife who is having sons and daughters by the, uh, you know, the bucket full. You know, now now the story is unfolded for us in such a way as to cause us as the readers to view this sad circumstance, to see Hannah's position as hopeless, to see her in a position of helplessness to prepare us, if you like, for the discovery that God is once again going to do what he has been doing throughout all of history, uh, all of the history of his people. And that is God is going to reach into the humdrum of life, the ordinary life of this ordinary family, And God, through his intervention, God is not only going to impact this family, but get this, you know, let this register with you. God is going to redirect the course of history. So when Hannah would inevitably... I guess routinely say during the course of any given day why is this happening to me the answer to her question was not going to be found in the this and it was not going to be found in the me for what God was doing 
providentially was something greater than even her own justifiable concerns. Now, doesn't history bear testimony to this? <coughs> you know, you just, uh, well, just to go off on a slight but not unrelated tangent for a second. If you think about the chaos in England at the end of the 17th, or certainly into the early part of the 18th century, all of it is darkness and the state of morality and the abuse of children in so many different ways. People at that point in history, the history of our nation, may well have had occasion to say, can you believe this? Can you believe the situation we're in? You know, you just look back 100 years ago, or 150 years ago to the time of Reformation and the blessing we were receiving and all that we, you know, had um, got from the hand of God through the Puritans, etc. And do you believe the situation we're currently in? You know, how on earth are we going to get out of this mess? You know, you look at the state of the place and things are going from bad to worse. Well, friends, who would have thought that the answer <coughs> would have came through two babies? One born on the 28th of June, 1703, <coughs> and the other 11 years later, on the 16th of December, uh, 1714. A baby born to Miss Susanna we- Mrs. Susanna Wesley on the 20th of June, 1703, and a baby George, born to uh, Mrs. Elizabeth Whitfield on the 16th of December, 1714. And obviously, you say the baby born to Susanna was John Wesley, in case I missed that. Um, so God, in the mystery of his purposes, was raising up not politicians, although there were some good politicians at the time, But God was raising up, actually raising up two men who would declare the word of God. And what a difference they would make to the world. It's phenomenal when you think about it. And beloved, I would encourage you to think along those lines because maybe you're saying to yourself, you know, I don't really know where I fit into the big scheme of things you know the vast majority of our neighbours and those we work with don't even believe there's a big scheme of things they believe that we're the product of a a random process and and chance they they believe that they're the the product of something that's just uh, haphazard and happens by accident and chaos is what You expect because chaos is all that there is. But Hannah's not like that. Sure she's not. That's not how Hannah thinks. The Hannah that we focus on here is a believer. And as much as she believes that God is responsible for the existence of the world. It isn't, you know, it hasn't come about by chance. She believes that it was... God who gives life and breath to all, be, you know, as Paul says in Acts chapter 17, 
She believed that God was in control of things. He is the one who gives life and breath to all. And it's because she believes that, that she's in difficulty here. You see, if she just believed in random chance, accidents, it's a random universe. If she just believed that all things, you know, happen by the throw of a dice, then there would be no real reason for her to complain, would there? There, there would be nobody to complain to. There would be nothing to be disagreeable about or... Uh, Nothing or no one that she could question. You know, who, who, who would she ask? Now, if you don't believe there is anybody in control of it, you think it is. If you think it's all just an accident, well, to whom would you go? You see, it's because of her theological convictions that there is a God, that there is a God in heaven who controls everything. That she's in this predicament. Because she's childless. And instead of time. As people often suggest. Proving to be. You know the great healer. In actual fact. The longer it goes on. uh, The worse it gets. Now there's an indication of that in verse 3. This man went up. uh, From his city. Yearly. To worship. And we read in the text about them going year after year. Year after year after year. And the passage of time made offense of her life all the more painful. But looking at Elkanah for a moment, here's this man. And he's not only marked by obscurity, because we really don't know an awful lot about him. He's a man not only marked by obscurity, but what we do know about him is that he's marked by consistency. He went up from this city yearly to worship at Shiloh. And this consistency was an expression of his piety. Because Shiloh was an important place historically and religiously. It was one of a number of places that became important to the people of God. Um, In Judges 21, you have the record there of an annual feast taking place at Shiloh. And clearly, Elkanah was concerned to go there to sacrifice to, to the Lord of hosts. That's what we're told. And when it talks about you know sacrificing to the Lord of hosts, what what is this referring to? Well, it's referring to the fact that the Lord of hosts is the God of, of heaven's armies. He is the mighty God, as we were saying on Sunday uh, past, that, that he is the sovereign. Now, you might think, or you might be tempted to think that since he took his family you know to this place every year and he took Hannah there also you might be tempted to think it would have been a good occasion for Hannah to get herself sorted out 
you know, going up to uh, the house of God, so to speak, you know, uh, to visit the place of sacrifice, uh, to be with God's people. And there, there may well have been, you know, some who would have been, you know, prepared to say to her, you know, Hannah, don't you think you need to get yourself sorted out? You know, you come here every year and you're just moping and complaining. Do you not think, Hannah, that you could stop thinking about yourself and about your problems? And since we're here for this very express purpose to worship God and to focus our uh, thoughts on God and to give you know, God our attention. Hannah, do you not think it would be a good idea if you just give God your attention? Rather than being so introverted. Well, I guess, I'm saying that because I guess that there were, there were no shortage of Job's comforters, you know, throughout history. You know, people who are able to point out to us we're in the, when we're in the midst of difficulty, that it's really something that we should be able to do something about that it's something that we should be able to solve if we just stopped being wrapped up in our own wee world. If we just stopped being wrapped up in ourselves, then we would be better off. You know, instead of looking in, instead of being consumed with what's going on inside, look out and up to God. It would be so, so better. That might be true, but this is the point. This is the point I'm trying to make. It doesn't actually help. You know, when you're in that, when you're in the shoes of Hannah. Now, Hilkanah, who is responsible for this little journey on an annual basis, had in taking Penina as his wife, got something that he wanted. He got children. But he also got something that he didn't want, namely a divided household. And in the routine distribution of the portions from the sacrifice, which you see here in verse 4, it says, when Elkanah made an offering, he would give portions, and note this, his giving of portions actually heightened the tension Heightened the tension because, as you see from the text, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to her sons and daughters. So here's one for you. Here's one for you. Here's one for you. There's another one for you. And the picture is of the fullness, if you like, of Penina's uh, experience. She has all of these children. And now to Hannah. And what did we discover? Well, he gave to Hannah a double portion for two reasons. One, because he loved her. And two, because she didn't have any children. Now, presumably, he's trying to be a good guy. But he's just compounded the problem. Because what's she supposed to do with all of this 
all of this food. You know, she's got no children to give it to. You know, I guess it's piled up in front of her. She, she has no, mouth, she has no uh, mouths to feed. Nobody's eating. She's certainly not eating. She hasn't the stomach for it. I guess neither of the two of them are happy. Because you could picture Panina looking on as Hannah gets, you know, the double portion and saying to her husband, do you think I'm stupid? I know what you're at. I know you love her and you love her more than me. That's why you give her more of that stuff. And turning to her rival, to Hannah, she says, and what do you have to thank God for, Hannah? You've got nothing. You have no children. You have no blessing. God has closed up your womb. He's forgotten you. And so she becomes, Penina becomes a catalyst for all of this uh, disruption marked by provocation and aggravation and intimidation. Again in verse 7, year by year. Year by year by year. You can imagine Hannah saying, that said, I'm not going back. That, 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 that was the last. You know, the turmoil that the woman, girl, must have been in. I have no doubt Hannah knew that all things that come our way, or do not come our way, we need to take as from a loving Heavenly Father's hand. But you see, she was having a hard time with her heart or her emotion catching up with her head. You see, the dilemma was that she had a theology. She had an understanding of God and an understanding of his purposes. She knew that he was God who was interested in the affliction of his people. She knew the history of judges. God raising up judges to deliver when the people were under affliction. She knew the history of the people of God in Egypt. When the people cried by way of their affliction, God sent a deliverer, sent Moses. Granted them salvation, bringing them out of Egypt. She would have known about Abraham's family, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. God cares about his people in affliction. She knew that God was a God who wouldn't forget his own. Now, she knew all of this. And yet, and yet at the same time, she was having real, real difficulty in reconciling the theology with the reality. And again, we can find ourselves standing in Hannah's shoes. Because how many times, yes, we know it. But the reality is, I'm having difficulty seeing my way through it. And that might be exactly where some of you are in your spiritual pilgrimage. 
You're waiting for your emotion, as it were, to be brought under the jurisdiction of what you know to be true of God. Or conversely, some may actually have emotionally got there and you're just waiting on your head to catch up. Now notice how Elkanah, typical male-like, he makes an attempt at fixing things. Verse 8. Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? And at that point, you can see the flying pans flying like in Elkanah ducking. I mean, are you honestly asking those questions to me? Elkanah, are you stupid? You really asking me why I'm grieved? Why are you weeping, Hannah? Why are you not eating? Why are you grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? In other words, I'm sufficient. Am I not sufficient, Hannah? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Wrong question. Wrong question, Elkanah. He should have said, Hannah, are you not more to me than ten sons? That, that should have been the right question. Because her grief was compounded by the fact that she knew that Elkanah loved her in every dimension in the relationship. And along with her, he longed to have a child, to have an heir. And so he should have said, sons or no sons, Hannah. You to me are everything. And then in a contemporary sense, he could have went on and sung to her. I would take the stars out of the sky for you. Stop the rain from falling if you ask me to. I'd do anything for you. Your wish is my command. I could move a mountain when your hand is in my hand. Words cannot express how much you mean to me. There must be some other way to make you see. If it takes my heart and soul, you'd know I'd pay the price. So you to me, Hannah, are everything. Well, it's not Handel's Messiah, is it? It's a, it's a real thing from Tux, from Tuxteth. <laughs> but the, the idea is there, isn't it, that our God, the God that you worship, I worship, my God, would move mountains for us, has moved heaven and earth for us. And selling his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us. It says in the Psalms, doesn't it, you know, about God performing all things for me. It's amazing, isn't it? That God performs all things for you. You know, that's how, how much he loves you. He take the stars out of the sky for you. And isn't he going to make everything new for us? 
He's going to make everything new in an instant. It's not what it says in Corinthians. In the moment. In the twinkling of an eye. All new. Can you imagine what that would be like? Sitting here. One. Twinkle of an eye. And then in the next everything is new. You know. God. Six days. To create the world. Rest in the seventh. When he recreates, when he makes all things new, it'll be in a nanosecond. Brand new world. For us, no more sin, no more struggling with sin, no more evil, pain, death. Everything new for us. Because he's the God who cares for us. He's the God who we're saying on Sunday night loves us with a never lasting love. So God we come before in prayer. So God we're going to supplicate in a few moments after we sing our second hymn. Let us come with great confidence beloved. Let us come with great boldness into his presence claiming the promises because he knows each one of us and he loves each one of us and he will move heaven and earth for us.